The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Thank you, and this is going to be a great night, and I'd love to welcome Carol Raymond. She's the Deputy Principal Investigator of the NASA Dawn Mission and the Program Scientist for Mission Formulation within the Solar System Exploration Directorate at JPL. She migrated to planetary science from a background in terrestrial geophysics, and her research aims to understand geodynamic processes of Earth and other planetary bodies, including plate tectonics, glacial isostatic adjustment on the Earth, magnetic field history of Earth and Mars, and the formation and evolution of protoplanets. She has led numerous deep sea and Antarctic field expeditions, but currently she devotes most of her time to robotic exploration of space. So please welcome Carol Raymond. Thank you, Jordana. Uh, I'd like to do a sound check. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay, and if you can't, just uh, raise your hand and I'll speak up. Uh, but I think the mic is working well. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here. It's a, it's a great privilege to be talking to this group of um, very interested um, community members. Um, I hope that I uh, can convey to you the sense of excitement um, that we have Uh, as we are going forth uh, in the asteroid belt and exploring new worlds. And that's really um, what we're doing. It's, it's tremendously exciting. Um, these targets of the mission are uh, really special places and, and places we, we actually um, knew little about with a few exceptions, which I'll be talking about. Um, but before I get started, I just wanted to point out the partners in the mission. Um, it's a NASA discovery mission, which is a low-cost mission. And by the time I finish, I hope you uh, are thinking, how could you be doing this uh, as a low-cost mission? Um, the principal investigator is Dr. Chris Russell at UCLA. Um, the mission is managed by JPL. The spacecraft was built by Orbital um, on, with um, parts from JPL. And we have several mission partners who contributed um, important instruments. Um, the Italian Space Agency, the German Space Agency, and uh, the Institute uh, Italian Institute for Astrophysics and the Max Planck Society. So as I go on, I will point out um, their contributions. So I'm going to start off um, talking a little bit about the Dawn mission and um, what motivated it. I'm going to talk about the two targets of the mission, Vesta and Ceres. I'm going to give you a little bit of history um, because it's not all science. There's other facets to uh, what we do. Um, and I talk about the spacecraft itself because uh, there's a, a, a very interesting story just in the, um, the ion propulsion system of the spacecraft and all the firsts that this mission is accomplishing. So um, Vesta, as you'll be hearing, is a source of more meteorites that fall to the Earth than come from the Moon and Mars combined. So we have a lot of pieces of Vesta um, on the Earth that can be studied. And I'll be telling you how we know that. Um, Ceres is, um, we don't have meteorites associated with Ceres. I'll be talking about Vesta mostly uh, and all the, some, of the, some of the fantastic results that we've gotten. Um, and at the end, I'll touch on why Ceres is also um, a fascinating target. So before uh, I move on, 
I'll just point out that this is the first time the spacecraft has gone to orbit a body in the main asteroid belt. It's the first spacecraft that's gone to orbit two targets, to orbit one target, leave it, and orbit another. And it will be the first to orbit a dwarf planet. So Vesta and Ceres are uh, what we like to call remnant protoplanets. Um, it's not important what you call them. The important thing is to understand that they represent building blocks of the planets. Um, so here in this montage against Pluto and the moon, um, we see that the Vesta and Ceres are uh, similar in, in their size, and we'll, we'll test how similar they are in, in other attributes. But over here, um, we see Matilda and Lutetia, which are um, very significant asteroids that have been visited. And uh, as you can see, they're, they're really small compared to Vesta and Ceres. So we're, um, we're interested in Vesta and Ceres because they're really a different class of objects than most of the material in the main belt. So let's um, step back a little and say, you know, where, where, does, where does the study of Vesta and Ceres fit in to understanding and uh, improving our knowledge of the evolution of the asteroid belt? Um, what we're after is trying to constrain the gradients in the, uh, the, the geochemical gradients across the early solar system when these bodies were forming and when the planets were forming, and also um, the impact of the dynamics of the system on the evolution of these bodies and the diversity that we see today. Vesta and Ceres were amongst the first bodies that were coalescing within the nebula of cold gas swirling around the star that was to become our sun. And similar protoplanets were coalescing and these were forming the terrestrial planets and the gas giant cores. At the very early stage, there was a supernova seeding the nebula with extra um, short-lived radionuclides, which were a, a heat source for bodies that were forming um, at that um, particular point in time. And Vesta, because it's composed of dry basaltic material, formed with those trapped radionuclides, it required this extra heat source. And so we believe that it formed early, and that helped to melt it and drive off the water. Ceres, which formed likely one or two million years later, did not melt internally as evidenced by its low density. So following the uh, formation of Vesta and Ceres and other similar objects, uh, Jupiter's formation largely arrested the development the, the accretion phase um, in the asteroid belt and resulted in a collisional environment that scattered material um, into the inner solar system. Now this is a fairly um, conventional wisdom view, um, one that we're uh, testing. And um, in particular, Vesta, because of its position in the middle of the main asteroid belt, is an important constraint on some of these dynamical models. It's seen witness to a lot of um, the objects that have been um, moving around. And we, the surfaces of Vesta and Ceres thus are kind of like recording the amount and the timing of the dynamics of the main belt. And the dynamics of the main belt are not, um, they're, they're not, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? They're not um, separated from the dynamics of the entire um, solar system. So 
Um, it's thought and models have been evolving in um, the recent uh, past that, that postulate that material has been exchanged between the inner solar system and the far reaches of the outer solar system. And so um, other, uh, other hypotheses that we believe we can inform with our investigation of these two bodies is um, the possibility that some of these bodies did not form in situ, did not form in this kind of uh, linear manner, but, but actually um, had a quite different history. So let's go back to the history part. Um, probably the first international observation campaign was organized by Baron von Zach to find the missing planet between Mars and Jupiter, which was predicted by an empirical law which was successful at uh, predicting the positions of the planets. So um, many astronomers took to their telescopes and looked for this missing planet. And Giuseppe Piazzi, on January 1st, 1801, discovered Ceres. He found a dim star, not on his charts. It was moving. And then he lost it. Um, but a year later, Baron Zach found it again. And thus, Ceres was discovered. The next year, Wilhelm Olbers discovered, made the second discovery of Pallas. And later um, in 1807, discovered Vesta. He's the only astronomer who's discovered two asteroids, and he discovered Vesta. Now, this is what we, this is approximately what we know today. Um, it's certainly changing quite a bit with the results from uh, the NEOWISE mission. But now we, uh, we realize that the main asteroid belt is full of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of objects, of which um, Vesta and Ceres are the two most massive. And in fact, together, Vesta and Ceres comprise about 40% of the mass of the main belt. Um, there are other populations of asteroids and uh, primitive bodies um, uh, reaching out into the far reaches of the solar system. There's also a population of near-Earth asteroids. But um, Vesta and Ceres are residing in this, this clumped population between Mars and Jupiter called the main belt. Now, um, the clumps are, are shown over here in terms of the number of asteroids versus the um, distance from the sun. And we see that the, the main inner belt clump is where Vesta resides, and Ceres is farther out. Um, out here in the outer reaches of the main belt, there are many objects that are rich in volatiles and organic. They're wet. Um, it's also where we find main belt comets. So this is a, a, a very um, interesting gradient that we see today. And one question is, has that gradient always been there? And is that the reason why uh, Ceres um, appears to be very different than Vesta? OK, so now I'll tell you a little bit about Dawn and how we got there. Um, we launched 200 years after the discovery of Vesta. Uh, we got a gravity assist from Mars, arrived to Vesta in July of 2011, went into orbit, and uh, we are there now. Uh, we'll depart late in August. We will then transfer to Ceres, where we arrive in February of 2015, for a stay that um, 
is nominally ending in July, but we're hoping will last quite a bit longer than that. Um, at each target, we have uh, this, we do the same investigation, and that's to um, to image in um, monochrome and color to compile a topographic map to map the mineralogical composition, the elemental composition, and measure the gravity field. This animation is then going to show you um, Don's journey from launch through its rendezvous or its gravity assist with Mars, where you see the, uh, the blue is when the spacecraft is thrusting with the ion propulsion system. After that long coast to lap Mars, the plane was changed to aim the spacecraft to Vesta, where it matched orbits and gracefully slipped into orbit, spending its year-long investigation and then leaving at the time when the orbits of Vesta and Ceres were um, very close, which is the reason why we can make this transfer with the ion propulsion system. So this is um, partly enabled by the incredible uh, ion propulsion system and partly just by the celestial mechanics. So let's take a look at the ion propulsion, because this is really one of the um, one of the messages that, um, that, I, that I hope resonates with the public uh, about Dawn. Um, we launched this mission on a Delta II rocket, which is shown over here. Um, it's a fairly small and inexpensive rocket. And if we, weren't, if we were using conventional chemical propulsion, then just to get to Vesta, we would have required um, 10 times as much propellant, um, 250 kilograms of xenon gets us to Vesta, whereas it would take 2,500 kilograms of chemical propellant. And to carry that much propellant would require a stronger spacecraft, so we wouldn't have been able to use the spacecraft that we did. Um, we would have been highly constrained in our launch period, our launch window, not, not very flexible or forgiving. And we would have had to use this high energy Atlas rocket to get us off the Earth. So that would have been um, completely unaffordable under the discovery program and likely would have never flown. So this is really a big deal. And, and this is going to be something that enables a lot of missions that are going to go to primitive bodies in the future. So just a quick look at the spacecraft. It's also fairly modest. Um, it's 2.3 meters high, so it's a, it's a little bit bigger than, than me standing here with my arm up. Uh, I just point out a couple of things. The large solar arrays, which are folded up, will fold out to be um, about 20 meters each wing. Um, our payload is the cameras are up here, the infrared, visible infrared spectrometer is here. You see one of three ion thrusters uh, peeking through the bottom here, and, and the core is the, the xenon tank. The gamma ray neutron spectrometer is up here out of view. Okay, and here are those uh, three instruments, just some pictures of them, um, and their, their um, attributes are the spectrometers 0.25 to 5 microns. This was um, built and contributed by the Italians, and um, the cameras, uh, framing cameras with seven color filters, were um, built and provided by the Germans. So I think there's a nice symmetry here between the discoverers of um, 
Vestin series and our mission partners. Um, we also have a gamma ray neutron detector, which was built at Los Alamos and is now being operated at Planetary Science Institute. And it's a similar instrument to those flown on um, Lunar Prospector and um, the Odyssey mission at Mars. Um, we use high resolution uh, Doppler navigation to provide gravity information and build up a gravity field of the objects. And we derive our topographic model from multi-angle imaging data. So we'll look a little bit at how we image or how we observe the surface, and then we will get to some of the results. So we start off, um, we're, we're trying to map very efficiently by mapping in orbits where um, each instrument could uh, be, uh, would be able to do a fairly comprehensive mapping of the surface. Um, so we stayed up fairly high initially at 3,000 kilometers radius so that the visible infrared spectrometer footprint would be large enough that we could um, get global coverage. It's fairly low resolution, but we could see everything. And you can see that in that, that orbit, and these are color-coded um, for the uh, uh, explanation over here, um, this is the framing camera footprint. So about four framing camera images would cover uh, all of Vesta um, at this altitude. As we move down to the lowest altitude orbit, you see it would be very hard to get uh, global coverage with the spectrometer. Um, and we have gotten global coverage with the camera. So um, we've been in the low altitude orbit long enough that we've been able to actually build up global coverage there, with a, uh, with a major exception, which I'll show you in a bit. OK, and then the gamma ray neutron spectrometer is really only sensitive to the surface in LAMO. It's a function of the solid angle. Um, and it's got a fairly broad sensitivity region. So um, it's the uh, integration of its counts uh, over its, um, its variable sensitivity region, which allows us to get a better resolution than this large um, footprint. So we moved down um, slowly. We spiraled in using the ion propulsion system. We only use hydrazine to do uh, momentum desaturation um, and all of our um, all of our thrusting is done with the ion propulsion. So we're currently, we just finished the LAMO orbit yesterday. <laughs> um, so we're currently spiraling back out and we're gonna stop again at the high altitude orbit on the way and get some more data. Um, and in particular, we want to um, look at the North Pole, which has been dark. So uh, I'll, I'll start showing you some of the interesting results that we've gotten. And um, before I start, I'll just say that we have a series of papers that will be published next week in Science. Um, and there will be a lot of uh, great um, additional information in those papers that I won't be talking about tonight. So I encourage you to, um, to look at them if you want more information. So the things that, to me, make VESTA very special is its size and, um, and it's the fact that it is the second most massive object in the belt. Um, it is one of the brightest objects in the main belt, and it also has a tremendous amount of contrast. Um, it's very colorful, and uh, in contrast to other asteroids, um, it's incredibly colorful. Um, as I mentioned before, we think that it accreted and differentiated early, which puts it in a special class, and Vesta has been sending us pieces of herself. 
And I brought one with me to, to show you. This is a, a meteorite that fell in Australia. It's the Milbalili. Um, it was a very large amount of material. Um, I'm sure you can buy it on eBay, Amazon, um, any reputable site like that. And I'd be, I would be happy to, um, to send it around as long as somebody's at the door making sure it doesn't leave. <laughs> so. Okay. So here's a little look at what Vesta looks like next to um, other asteroids that have been visited. I mentioned Letitia before. Um, and Letitia was just visited by the Rosetta spacecraft. It's a 100-kilometer asteroid. It has some very interesting features, um, geologic features, as do um, all of these asteroids. Um, and Letitia also is fairly dense and dry. Um, but as you can see, the, the, the comparison is, is um, that Vesta is, is really a huge object. It's not a uh, um, piece of something. It is a, a body and it's, it's its own world. Um, and we like to, um, well, what I'm going to try to impress upon you tonight is that Vesta is really a transitional object between what we call an asteroid and what we call a planet. Um, and that's because it has experienced many of the geophysical processes that we associate with planets. So if we look at Vesta um, compared to some of this planetary um, analogs, um, Mercury, <laughs> Mars, Mercury, the Moon, um, we find that there, it shares many things in common um, with these terrestrial planets. So I'll be um, pointing that out as we go. So, you know, Vesta is, you've seen Vesta in, in these two situations, and obviously it's very tiny compared to the planets, but it, it really does have um, many, many of the same characteristics. Um, and here is Ceres, and um, Ceres does not appear to be uh, very similar to the rocky terrestrial planets, but it does have many similarities to um, the icy moons of the outer solar system. Okay, so let's look at the HED meteorites, the Howardite, Eucrite, Diogenites, a class of meteorites that I already told you are, are very numerous, um, and they have been associated to Vesta. This is a, um, and this, this will be the only squiggly line chart that I'm going to show. So um, if, you don't, <laughs> if you don't care about it, just tune out and you can come right back. Um, so this is a spectrum collected on a, from a telescope um, by Tom McCord, who was, as he tells me, the first graduate with a planetary science degree from Caltech um, in 1969. Um, and co-author on this paper was Torrance Johnson, who didn't come to the talk, but um, is <laughs> but um, is participant. Yeah. Anyway. And interestingly, they had the idea. They were they were looking at Apollo samples, and they thought, um, now we've got all these spectra of, of lunar rocks. You know, let's look around at all the stuff out in the um, in the solar system that we can look at and see if we can match any of these things up. Um, and so they started to look at the meteorites, um, or the spectral library of meteoritic material. And um, this was like the first spectrum they got. And it was just, you know, this gold right out of the gate. Um, and it never got anything as good as that <laughs> afterwards. But, but it was um, certainly a, a, a very uh, fruitful study. 
These are the spectrums, spectra of um, meteorites measured in, la in the lab, um, and there's two types, the eukaryotes and the diogenites, and I'll be talking about absorption bands just, you know, in passing. That's, those are these, um, these deep um, decreases in the reflectance. So this is basically the amount of light reflected versus wavelengths, and, and there are diagnostic absorption bands for certain uh, minerals or assemblages of minerals. So um, the diogenites, which you can see here, um, are coarser grain and thought to be com coming from deeper layers in the body. Um, the eukrites are more akin to basalt, uh, a fast-cooled, uh, upper-crustal type of unit, um, both um, quenched and, and a slower-cooled cumulate version. And then the howardite, which is what most of Vesta is made of, is, is a mixture of those things. And you can see it's, it's, it's very ground up and it's uh, brecciated. Um, and it's, as I said, most of Vesta is howarditic. So what are we trying to test when we've got the rocks in the lab, um, we're going to the parent body, we want to see if indeed those rocks came from Vesta. But we want to go a little bit deeper than that. Um, so the idea of the melting of Vesta um, because of the inclusion of this short-lived radioactive material um, is a, a model called the magma ocean. So you melt the whole body internally and then everything segregates and um, you get a nice basaltic crust. But it doesn't have to happen that way. And um, so we're interested to know, did, did it partially melt in some places and um, not completely melt and therefore are there sort of distinctive reservoirs of magma that would create um, chemical variations or compositional variations on the surface. And so um, there are these models that have been created um, from analysis of the meteorites, um, which postulate from trace element data that um, there may have been separate magma chambers um, in the later stages of formation of the crust, but um, that could also signify that you had um, distinct reservoirs throughout the body. So, so that's one thing that we're after. So we're going to um, take a look at imaging data now, um, and then we'll be looking a little bit at some of the spectral data. And then we'll be looking at the geophysical data that will show us about the interior. Um, and then we'll take uh, the, the Little Prince tour, um, and we'll go uh, look around, do some flyovers of interesting places, and, and look in detail at a more human scale what Vesta looks like. So this is the um, image mosaic from the high altitude orbit. That was the orbit where we um, covered Vesta six times with uh, different angles and lots of color filter data. And um, right off, you can see that there's some differences um, in hemispheric and, um, and also longitudinally um, in the, the appearance of the surface. So we have a fairly heavily cratered northern hemisphere. Um, we have a set of very deep and um, persistent troughs around the equator, and you can see them here in um, this, this limb view. And then we have a southern hemisphere, which is, is really smooth and has all kinds of interesting textures. Um, and it's uh, what we call resurfaced. So we, um, the, the craters which existed on the surface, like we see in the north, 
have been covered over um, at some later time. And in addition to being covered up, I mean, there still are plenty of craters there, but there's, there's, this is not a saturated surface, meaning that um, we don't have so many craters that each new one obliterates an, a pre-existing one. Um, and in addition to it being smooth in areas and, and relatively uh, less cratered, it has all of these interesting grooves and um, troughs and, um, and steep scarps and lots of evidence for um, mass wasting or, or movement of the material on the surface. Uh, in addition to these equatorial troughs, we have this other set of troughs that come through the northern hemisphere like this, and you can see them in um, side view. Um, and they appear to be older, they're more degraded, um, and they're, so they're smoother, they're deeper, um, and they are cross-cut by this other set. So we believe those are an older set. Those troughs are something we did not expect to see. Um, we didn't expect to see such um, obviously tectonic features on a body this size. Now, another really cool thing you get to do when you go to a place that people haven't seen at this scale is you get to name things. So we started out early picking a theme, um, and given our Italian um, collaborators, we thought it was a natural thing to choose uh, the Vestal Virgins. So we assembled a list of names of Vestal Virgins, of famous Roman women, of towns and festivals associated with the Vestals, and um, you, know, you have to submit the, the names, they check your research and make sure that um, you can really justify that these names are representative of what, you, of what your theme is, and then you get them approved. And once they're approved, you can um, start naming things. So um, these are all uh, documented Vestals. And we have um, many craters that have been named. Um, we also have Glenicia, Terra, so, so broad, um, uplifted, or, or higher topography, smoother plains. We have rupees, which are, are scarps, um, you know, steep-rimmed scarps. And um, the, the troughs are named fossae. So I mentioned the dichotomy, um, and here's a, another view of that. So these were pictures we took when we were on approach, and they really are some of the most beautiful ones to me because um, you see the whole thing, um, you know, the whole body as, as basically uh, what it looks like. Um, we have found this, this interesting feature which um, is very public friendly, which we call the snowman, um, the, the, these three craters. <laughs> they were not formed at the same time. So that, that's kind of interesting. Um, we see the, the resurfacing of the south here and um, you can see the, the texture in the north being much more um, varied. Okay, I talked about the troughs already. Um, what I didn't say is that these appear to be associated with giant impacts. Um, and basically, they, if you um, make planes through the body um, along each of these grooves, and there's a lot of them, so you can take a lot of planes, um, and then you take the poles to those planes and look at the, uh, where they the average lays, it is in the center of giant impacts on the surface. So we believe, well, that it implies that these, these had something to do with the impacts. We don't yet have a satisfactory way to explain exactly how that happens. 
So now we're looking not at the image mosaic, but at the topography. So this was created all from image data, taken from many different directions, um, and processed um, with a very sophisticated um, method. And uh, so here you can see the, the grooves coming through the terra, um, which are associated with the rims of the Rea Silvia Basin. You can see the depth of the basin and this large, um, massive central peak, which we'll look at again and again and again. Um, in the north, you see more lower, lower relief to the topography, but also um, the evidence for other large impact basins, not nearly as big as Rea Silvia, but, but clearly there have been a range of, of large impacts on the body. Um, what I said I was going to come back to is the fact that we have not seen all the way to the North Pole. Um, Vesta's rotation axis is inclined, and so it's basically um, summer in the southern hemisphere. We had a great look um, right at the South Pole when we got there. The sun was at its maximum um, southern latitude, and now it's been moving north, and just as we're departing, it will cross the equator. So we'll get some grazing incidents to the North Pole. So uh, we're going to take a closer look at the um, southern hemisphere. So uh, this is the, the whole southern hemisphere flattened out. Um, you can see the equatorial troughs. And um, I'll just attest that if you do the, that analysis I told you about, the, um, those poles land right about at the center of this basin. Um, the basin itself, I already did this. I don't have to tell you. Oh, there it is. <laughs> um, so this is just a rough outline of um, where we've determined the basin uh, rim to be. And you're probably going, hmm, that doesn't look like a rim to me. Um, and it, it doesn't have a very uh, obvious rim morphology. But we do have um, some clear rim uh, structures on either side here. Um, and if you... Um, do stretches of the topography, it, it comes up much more clearly by the fact that we have this, this low topography. But um, in the middle and not apparently quite centered is this large central peak complex. Now, um, it was noticed pretty early on that this looked a little bit interesting. And um, let me go on, I think I got ahead of myself. Okay, before I leave this, um, the other thing that we see is a lot of um, slumping. So this rupees here and here um, are basically scarps where material has been um, falling down the hill. So the, the slopes are at their angle of repose. The material is slumping down the hills into this area, and the material is also slumping through. So we have stuff coming from many different directions, and it's thought that that occurs um, at the same time as the impact itself. So the impact energy and all of the seismic shaking um, is likely the source of a lot of this mass movement of the ejecta just as it's um, settling back onto the body. Okay, so we did realize that um, we have two impact basins in the south. Um, and this one has a little bit more of an obvious um, rim. Um, and it's likely the reason why we have a very muted rim um, in this area for the Rea Silvia Basin. So uh, we named the largest basin Rea Silvia, 
Um, this, this other basin is now called um, Veninia. And um, so interesting fun facts, relative to the body size, this crater, Rhea Silvia, would stretch from Washington over the North Pole to Tokyo, um, scale to the Earth. Um, the central peak is more than twice as high as Mount Everest, scale to the Earth. And um, these two basins together, or even Rhea Silvia by itself, um, is sufficient to have liberated the amount of material that we see in Vesta's dynamical family, the bunch of stuff that's co-orbiting with Vesta because it came off the surface um, at some point, and uh, to explain the amount of material that's falling to the Earth as the HEV meteorites. Okay, so this is going to be just a fun flyover. So you can see all those features um, at a different view. Um, again, the, um, the rims are fairly well expressed in these two areas. You now see that older basin, uh, the central peak, somewhat asymmetric cross-section of the basin. And um, as this comes around again, I'll point out that um, there are many sort of intermediate-sized craters that are punching through this low area. And um, I don't have this, uh, any slides to support this, but we do see that um, some of these craters are accessing the material that we would expect to be at a lower stratigraphic level in Vesta. So um, we have excavated, this, this impact has excavated into the, um, the lower crust, perhaps upper mantle, exposing the, the, the lithologies, which I um, showed you before, the diogenites, the slower cooled um, members of the Vesta meteorite family. Now, another really interesting thing that we didn't anticipate, but probably should have been able to, is that Vesta is dominated by impacts on slopes. It's a small body, um, and so you get big impacts, and they're, they're invariably going to be on slopes. In fact, Vesta has really uh, steep slopes everywhere, the slopes up to 39 degrees. And so here's a, an example of one of our favorite craters on a slope, um, where you can see that the material is, is kind of flowing in this direction, you see almost like crevasses, and then you've got a big deposit that's, that's overrun one side of the um, basin. And you can see from the rest of the rim, it's a very sharp, well-expressed rim. This is a fairly young crater, but um, you wouldn't know that looking at this rim. So um, you also can see there's lots of other features in the ejecta. This is the ejecta blanket from the Rhea Silvia impact. You say, well, What's going on here? Um, and this is an impact on a slope. So um, that material that seemed to be flowing was, was up here, seems to be slumping down into the basin, and stuff is flowing up and over. But in fact, um, a better explanation for this is that an impact has come in at an oblique angle, and so most of the ejecta is being thrown up to one side of the impact basin, and then because of the slope, it's all falling down under the, the weak but, um, but existing gravity of Vesta and, and ending up um, being mostly deposited in this asymmetric way. And we see this over and over again on Vesta. Makes crater counting very difficult um, because many of the craters are not round. Um, they're parabolic. Um, they have um, odd angular shapes. They have um, very degraded rims or um, other 
confounding effects that make it difficult to, to determine the exact diameter of these craters, which is important for doing the crater counting for uh, age dating. So another view of Antonia, and in this I'll point out also that a lot of brightness variations here, and I believe that's what I'm going to get into next. Okay, with a stop for the color. This is the color map from the framing camera data, and it's made in false color using uh, three bands. And uh, uh, basically the colors mean where you see the green, you're seeing um, material that has a deep uh, iron absorption band. So that I showed you that with the spectrum. Um, and that's ind indicating that you have um, a fairly um, iron-rich um, composition here. Uh, the red areas uh, are just something that has a, a distinct composition. And the blue is, is something that's a little more spectrally neutral, so the, um, the spectrum is, is just flatter overall. Um, I'm going to zoom in on a couple of areas here, um, this crater and, and these. And um, just want to <laughs> impress upon you that within small areas of Vesta, you have tremendous uh, compositional spectral diversity. I, I'm using composition and spectral uh, you know, to be uh, equivalent, and there's some translation there, but um, in general, uh, this, is, this is likely the case. Um, so here you can see uh, clearly the ejecta from this crater, but in the crater itself, you see um, the excavation has um, accessed layers below the surface, which have a very different uh, spectral fingerprint. And, and that is matching some of the surrounding area and has been um, accessed with this crater as well. So we see, uh, again, this type of thing over and over again. Um, uh, it, this crater, which we can look at in the, the next slide, um, is really, really interesting on some sort of compositional boundary, um, which where the ejecta um, to one side appears very distinct and similar in composition to um, some patchy material that's outcropping throughout the region, which seems to be um, specific to this one area. Um, and within the crater itself, again, some, some weird mixing and, um, and kind of a jumbled up um, compositional distribution. Now, the other, I said there's a lot of contrast on Vesta. The um, brightest parts of Vesta have an albedo of about 67%. Um, uh, the average albedo is about 38. And the darkest areas are about 10. So it's really, really significant. Here's a, a dark band, which um, kind of cuts across a lot of features. And it's, um, it's kind of um, sinuous. And it's interacting with some areas where craters have brought up bright material from beneath the surface. You see the bright material kind of comes out in these little spots. Um, on, at the low altitudes, we found that most of those spots are actually little tiny craters. Um, here's another example where you have dark material appearing in bands. Um, and it's, it's clearly uh, some sort of a layer or a dike or a structure um, that's, that's peeking out from beneath the surface. And, and this is just this diffuse region of um, darker uh, regolith and then uh, specific dark spots. Um, and then here's one of our favorite craters um, where you see a dark material in the crater and then a bright 
um, slump into the, the very bottom um, and a lot of, of that uh, modeling around it. Another example here of the kind of irregular shapes of craters that you see um, seems to be some sort of, of geologic um, fabric going through the area that may have, have influenced the crater shape. Uh, a highly degraded crater up here, all of these spots of bright material that are um, showing up in the crater, um, as well as a lot of dark material in the, um, in the uh, regions outside. And again, another one of these little um, streaks. So really, um, at every scale, you see these very um, strong diversity in brightness and in the um, spectral properties. So here um, is another fantastic example of a crater which has hit um, an area that must have had, must have um, many layers of different types of material um, that are very close to the surface. And these are likely um, ejecta layers from, other, from surrounding impacts, which have um, layered up over time, and then they're being um, punctured by this, this impact. And the material then is slumping um, down into this other highly degraded crater um, and forming these really interesting uh, textures. Um, the nice thing is that with our payload, we can look um, specifically at a point in one of these um, streaks, you know, and, and find out uh, the specific spectral um, fingerprint of that material. So I'm gonna move on now to the interior of Vesta, um, try to move this along. Um, this is the shape model that I showed you before, it's a slightly different um, color scheme, and then uh, the gravity field in contours on top. And um, I'll just tell you, there's a very high correlation of the gravity and topography. And that's not unexpected because Vesta is a solid body. Um, it has significant topography. Um, we can also tell from that gravity field that there's a, a mass concentration at the core. So if we took the um, Vesta as a shape and um, created a gravity field by using a homogeneous density, and we get the density because now we know the volume because we've measured the shape, we've measured the mass, so we have the average density. We, we um, calculate the um, degree to uh, gravity, and we find out that uh, Vesta does not have a homogeneous density uh, interior. There's a mass concentration towards the core. We have constraints from the meteorites, uh, from their metal element depletion, um, that there should be an iron core on Vesta. Therefore, we assume that the core on Vesta is iron, and we do a mass balance model against the gravity field, and we can estimate the size of that core. Um, and that is consistent with models that um, estimated the size of the core just from the analysis of the meteorites. So this is one of our lines of evidence um, that Vesta is indeed the source of the HEBs. Now this is just kind of a fun look at the shape of Vesta spinning and the gravity field. And um, you, know, you can clearly see that where we had that high topography, the Terra, there's a um, high gravity and the basins in the north are showing up as gravity lows the um, Rhea Silvia showing up gravity low and the central mound as a gravity high. So um, again, not very surprising. So what we wanna do is see, are there density variations or are there gravity variations that, which are not um, associated with the topography? So we can make some assumptions um, of 
based on that model I just showed you, core mammal crust, um, and we can uh, estimate the thickness of the crust and then assign some densities to the crust and the mantle and calculate uh, the gravity anomalies, um, ca calculate the, the gravity that which would be due to the topography and strip it off. And then what we're left with is the, um, the difference between what we assumed and what's actually there. So what we're seeing um, across here is that we have some residual gravity anomalies which are not due to the topography. And um, if you focus just on this one, um, it is small when the crust is light, lighter, and it gets bigger when the, when the crust approaches the same density as the mantle. So what we're trying to do here is to say, well, um, how much crust is there and what is its density? What is the density of the mantle? Then we can relate those back to what we can measure from the meteorites in the lab. Um, so that's the central peak of the, the basin. And here are those two um, high topography areas on the rim. And here what we find is that when the mantle density gets smaller, um, those areas um, get lower in their anomaly. And what we're trying to do is minimize the energy in the gravity field. So what we see is that these areas appear to be um, lighter um, than uh, using a, a smaller crustal density appears to reduce um, the anomaly here in the basin. And that means that the positive here indicates we have material which is um, denser than that crust. Over here on the, um, particularly on this rim, what we're seeing is that um, we appear to have uh, much higher densities on the, um, the flank than um, we have in the basin itself. So this is something that we're looking at um, with uh, more, in more detail, but it, it is indicating to us that the, the central peak, which we expect is uplifted mantle, which should have a higher density, appears to, and that um, there's something really funny going on with the flanks. Um, and this just compares it with back to the topography um, and where those two basins are. Um, and we see that the rim over here is, um, is actually a, a, a low. Um, the rim over here where we have the highest topography is a high. And um, the kind of one-to-one -one correspondence between the central peak and that, that positive there. So the, the message here is that we can use the gravity um, to uh, look down deeper into the crust um, get some constraint on, on what type of material um, is creating this topography and then layering on the compositional uh, information that we're getting, kind of build a geological history of um, the evolution of, of at least the South Pole Basin. Now, uh, this is the part where we just uh, do some fun uh, flyovers and take a look at some of the details before I wrap this up. Um, this is back to Marsha Crater, the base of the snowman. Um, and it really embodies so many of the interesting features that we're seeing. Um, it has this weird kind of angular shape. Um, it has a bench over here where you can see very smooth material. Um, could be some impact melt, could be fine-grained ejecta. It flows. There's uh, many areas where you see some sort of fluid motion of material downslope. Um, and it flows into this interesting area of the, at the bottom of the crater where we have a little bit of a central peak 
and we have uh, a pitted terrain. And the pitted terrain is also seen on Mars, and it's associated with the release of volatiles from the subsurface. So um, that is an area that we're actively investigating. Uh, also along the rim here, you see um, the br this very bright layer outcropping, and right below it, lots of dark material, and that dark material is flowing down the hill. We get a little closer, um, and we can see the, um, the, the, the bright material is also um, flowing down slope. So to give you an idea of the scale of this thing, um, that crater is over 60 kilometers wide. And for reference, if you know Meteor Crater, um, that's a little over a kilometer. So if you were standing in this thing, it would be pretty darn impressive. Um, and the, the, the scale of the processes that we're looking at is, um, is, is really very, uh, very interesting and, and very compelling. It's another one of um, my favorite craters. Um, and this is the one I showed you uh, early on and had the bright streak going in. Well, now we're looking at it on the topographic model. This is the area with the dark material. You can see there's competent units, meaning you know, kind of solid units in the, in the wall here um, and stuff coming down. Then you got all this bright material that's flowing down the slope. It's flowed into a pit here. And again, we have an example of a pitted terrain. So um, there's also, we have a lot of other constraints here with thermal inertia data, the compositional data, um, the water bands from the spectrometer instrument, and all of this data is coming to bear on trying to understand in detail what's going on um, in these uh, very interesting areas. So looking ahead, um, right now I said we're, we're spiraling out of LAMO. Uh, we should be departing VESTA by the end of August. Um, most of the northern cap will be imaged. We may miss a uh, teeny tiny bit. And we'll be completing our high-resolution spectral mapping of the um, surface in this HAMO2 orbit. And then we leave VESTA and are on our way to Ceres. So if you can hang on, I'll give you a little um, preview of Ceres um, and then take some questions. So um, Ceres, very different than VESTA, really unique, and it's a dwarf planet. Um, it's about 970 uh, kilometers in diameter, uh, surface temperature of more than 200 K, so much uh, warmer than uh, many icy moons, uh, has a seriously hydrostatic shape, um, doesn't appear to have any large craters, low density, um, giving us a rock mass fraction of about um, two-thirds to one-third, and um, recently it's been discovered that there's carbonates and brucite on the surface of Ceres. And that makes Ceres the third object after the Earth and Mars on which carbonates have been observed. Clearly, this body has a lot to tell us. Um, but we don't have any meteorites that are linked to Ceres as of yet. And um, so to, to try to understand uh, in, our, in the planning sense what we're going to be seeing, we have to rely on telescopic data. Okay, so here's a model by uh, Julie Castillo of what the interior of Ceres might look like from a thermal evolution perspective, um, and that's a, uh, a hydrated, uh, hydrated silicate shell over an anhydrous silicate core, um, a, an icy mantle with a possible liquid layer um, near the equatorial belt, 
and a, a layer of stuff that's fallen in and possibly um, that's come out. The brucite and carbonates on the surface um, need a way to get there. And one um, possibility is convection. So uh, interaction of hydrothermal fluids with the uh, silicate core, and then that material finding its way to the surface. So um, this recent model indicates that all of the conditions for mobile lid convection on series would be met over um, long periods in series history. And um, that gives us a plausible way to get this material from deep inside the body out to the surface. Um, and so that gives us um, a source of um, heat, uh, energy, and, um, and interesting chemistry. Um, and, and that's ending up in a place where we can observe it. So the questions that we're after at series are um, summarized here and just give you a, a very quick um, view is, is really capped by what's the astrobiological potential of series. And to interrogate that, we want to know um, the nature of this, the interior, the um, origin of the present surface, um, its geological history, um, any uh, volatiles that are um, in the atmosphere or exosphere, um, and, and understanding what region series formed in. So our payload is um, suited to answering those questions, and um, that is the, the focus of our series investigation. Uh, and finally, this is just a, a comparison of the Earth Europa and series. So um, this a, a, a target for our astrobiological missions, and um, series really uh, compares favorably. It's, it's, a, it's a very um, important uh, contribution, I think, to the uh, study of the astrobiological potential of primitive bodies to, to understand what's going on at Ceres. So um, I think with that, I will um, thank you all. I'd like to um, also thank the whole Don team. It's a privilege to work with them. And um, I'd be happy to take some questions. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.